But let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11 for the last time in this series. We've spent about four months here, I think. It's been quite a long time. Hebrews 11, as I continue to point out, is a, is a series of case studies of real people in real circumstances dealing with the issues of life. Uh, we've been reminded that none of these men or women had perfect faith. None of them were sinless. Uh, all of them experienced a, a significant amount of suffering and, and trials in their lives, as everybody does. A few are known for their spiritual successes, for their triumphs, their victories. Noah comes to mind. Moses comes to mind. Others are best known for what they suffered. Uh, Abel is one of those. Jacob is one of those. And that's that's far more true than the open and obvious victories that we think about. So let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word and look at it together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that it's it's not just human words about you. It's your word breathed out for us. The Bible is your voice in written form. And so help us to treat it with the same respect that we would give you if you were here with us at this moment, uh, because you are in the spirit and in the scriptures you have given us. And we thank you for this time and ask for your blessing in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, there's, there's four aspects to these closing verses, verses 32 to 40. The writer says, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. There are four aspects to these verses as the, the passage breaks down, and they all have to do with the centrality of faith. Remember, Hebrews 1, 1, or 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And it, that drives the entire chapter. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. <coughs> The people of this chapter dealt with everything that we just read in these verses and did so in in faith. So there are first four truths, I think, that we could call them about these verses that are about faith. 
the first truth is that there is victory, and there is victory now. We often don't think about that. Uh, we, we see that Moses or was used mightily of God to deliver Israel out of slavery in Egypt. We see that Enoch walked with God, and, and he was taken by God before he died. And we tend to look at the others as people who suffered and, and there was no victory. That Christians have more victory now in this life than we really realize. I think there are several reasons I don't realize it. These are personal reasons. They might apply to you. You might have others. Uh, I'm often short-sighted. I often only see my immediate circumstances. I can only see the day that I'm living in. And because of that, I, I, I think if I'm struggling today, if things are hard today, there must not be any victory today. That's not biblically true. I also tend to have bad definitions of what it means to be a strong Christian. I should know better, but I I, I tend to think that strong Christians are those who never falter, they never stub their toes, they're never weak, they never wonder, they never have questions. They just kind of charge through and nothing ever affects them or seems to. And then I look at life, and I think many of us do from the standpoint of my own personal comfort. I see the word victory, and and I kind of want to assume that victory means contentment and happiness and stability. It means an inner emotional, personal comfort. None of those things are actually true about victory. And we experience as Christians a vast number of victories. They're, they're, they're found all through Scripture. Let me just give you a few that I see in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. If you are in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ right now. If you're in Christ, then God has chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world. And you were chosen by God to be holy and blameless. You were predestined by him to adoption as a son to him through Christ. God's grace has been freely given to you in Christ. We have redemption through Jesus' blood. We have forgiveness of our trespasses. We have knowledge of the mystery of the will of God. We have an inheritance in Christ. We are filled and sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Those are victories. Now, somebody might might think about those things and say, well, wait a second, those aren't my victories. Those aren't my successes. Those aren't things that I do. Those are things that God does. Well, that's what biblical victory is. Biblical victory is not you. Biblical victory is what the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit do in their people to magnify the name of God, to bring glory to the name of God. Not one person that we studied in Hebrews 11 achieved any of those things on their own. They, they, they came into those victories and those successes completely due to God who was at work in them and through them and for them. It was his gracious gift to them. Not one of those men or women would have patted themselves on the back and said, look what I did. They would have lifted empty hands to heaven and said, Look what the Lord has done. Behold what our God has done. So there is victory now. We can be encouraged by that truth. The second truth that we see in these verses is that there is suffering 
Now, right after the mention of resurrection in verse 35, we see that others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And we read of mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonment and all sorts of of physical suffering and tortures and executions. That shouldn't be a surprise. Suffering in our world is not a secret. It's not an unusual thing. The gospel never promises a, a perfect, flawless, wonderful life to unbelievers Although sometimes I hear it, it presented that way when evangelists are speaking, they, they promise everything. And, and as somebody who's been a Christian for a while, I tend to look at that or listen to those things and think, but you're not showing them the fine print. You're not actually being truthful with them. You're not telling them that being in Christ can be harder than being in the world. Because the world isn't opposed to its own. It is opposed to those who are in Jesus. These people, it says, are men and women of whom the world was not worthy in in verse 38. That's not because they were heroes. That's not because they were giants. It was because they stood firm in faith and they refused to be moved. They refused to budge. In a sense, these are not world changers. There are people that the world could not change. They're people of stability. The church is always going through various sorts of crises and and trials and and torments. And we see it going on today with the the homosexual rights movement, with, with racial reconciliation type of issues and the things that are taking place there. And some on the the liberal side of things who are departing from the faith are looking at us and saying, why all of a sudden are you so conservative? Why are you being so hard-nosed about things? And my response is that I haven't changed. The scripture hasn't changed. The word of God has not changed. We maintain a straight line like a laser as we follow scripture. And those who are immature in their faith are unbelievers in the church, tares in the wheat field, weeds in the wheat field, as Jesus called them. They drift. They move away from us. We're not changing. They change. And as a result of that, suffering comes into our lives. That shouldn't surprise us. Jesus told us that we would suffer in the world, but that he has overcome the world. Remember, too, that for those who are in Christ, suffering can only last as long as this mortal life lasts. For the Christian, dying is not the end. For the Christian, dying is the beginning. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For those who are in Christ, there is the promise given in Revelation 21, 3 and 4, that there will no longer be any death or any mourning or any crying or any pain. And Revelation 4 says that those are former things. The former things have passed away. Well, right now, the things that are former things in Revelation 21 are present things for us. We're still in the midst of that. We're still dealing with mourning and death and crying and pain. We're still dealing with all of those things in our lives in a variety of ways. But those things that are present things will one day be the former things. 
The third thing to remember about suffering is that no amount of suffering can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 are, are absolutely key verses. Every Christian should spend time there frequently thinking about and reading about and meditating on what God has done for us and what the Lord Jesus has done for us. God has proven his love for us by giving his son who died and rose again. And so the question is asked, who will bring an accusation? And the answer is, God has justified us. So there is no longer grounds for an accusation. The question is asked, who will condemn us? That is, who will sentence us to death? And the answer is, no one can do that because Jesus has already died on our behalf. And in fact, he's risen again on our behalf. And so no condemnation gets past Jesus' death and resurrection. No accusation can survive the justification God has given with given. Nothing within creation, death, life, angels, demons, the present, the future, the past, any power, any portion of the universe, anything that has been created, none of those things can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Now that includes our suffering. We might think that when life is hard, that when we're suffering, we're being punished for something. This is because of something that I did. And that's not biblically true. We'll see as we move into Hebrews 12 that God does discipline his children. Discipline is not punishment. Punishment is about payment. Punishment is about paying a debt that can only be paid through some sort of suffering or difficulty. Discipline is about training. Discipline is about becoming stronger. And so let me just remind you that eternity stretches out before you. And as you find your life in Christ, this mortal life that seems so long now is going to seem like the blink of an eye. Back in April, Sarah was over with the kids and I took pictures in in our backyard and I just found them on my camera and sent them over yesterday. And, And I remember taking those pictures and I remember the kids running and laughing and uh screaming with delight as I remember taking pictures of my own kids when they were little and it seems like that was yesterday that that was yesterday when our daughter Grace stepped into my mom and dad's pool we're all standing around the pool she was about 18 months old and she just took a step sank to the bottom in the shallow end and I remember thinking well that's interesting My brother dives in, fully clothed, and gets her. He brings her out, puts her on the side. She just turns right around and steps right back in. She wasn't afraid. She wasn't panicking. She wasn't breathing in the water. We had to set up the fence. I remember that like it just happened. I remember that like like it was just a few minutes ago. You've all experienced life that way. It's harder for the kids, but even kids have something like that. And the older you get, the more you see those, those moments, just they just click by. What you're going through now in eternity will just be, a, a, just be the snap of a finger. What seems so long now is going to be a distant memory. 
and you'll wonder, where did the time go? Those 70, 80, 90 years I spent on earth, where did it go? It was so fast. It was over so quickly. The third truth I want you to remember is that eternity is to come. Verse 39 says, All of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. How is it possible that men and women could gain approval through their faith, yet not receive what was promised? Another question would be, what's the point of gaining approval for your faith if you have not received what was promised? Well, faith is never meant to bring the promises of God about. Faith is meant to gain approval. That's why it's so important that faith is a gift from God. He grants us the faith to believe. We believe. We receive his approval. And we receive his promises. The promises that God has made were never intended to fix this world. They were never intended to simply do maintenance or rewind this world back to the Garden of Eden. They were never meant to simply override the events of our lives. I've said in previous messages, the promises of God can't be fulfilled here because the earth is not big enough to hold them. What we're told in Ephesians 1.3 is that we have been given the promise of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Those spiritual blessings are in the heavenly places where God is. You couldn't fit the spiritual blessings God has made to you onto this earth. I don't think you could fit them into the universe. They're too big for that. They're too weighty for that. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says this about the things that God has prepared. There are things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man. Those are the things which God has prepared for those who love him. If through some quirk, Bill Gates at Microsoft or Tim Cook at, at Apple or some huge multi-multi-billionaire gave you enough money that all you had to do for the rest of your life was sit and wonder what God has prepared. You could never imagine it. You could never imagine it. You could spend the rest of your life building up the biggest, most wonderful thing of all, and at the end you would find that what you had dreamed about, what you had thought of was was so tiny compared to what he's doing that it doesn't even register. We've never seen what God has promised. We've never heard the promises of God. We only know that they're there. And we can't imagine what they will be. The men and women of Hebrews 11 believed that God's promises to to them were real. They believed that those promises would come. They never lost faith in him. And so they died without receiving the promises and nevertheless they gained what true faith brings which is the approval of God. Now that all works because of the fourth point and the fourth point, the fourth truth is that there is something better. There is something better. Verses 39 and 40 says, All these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. 
So these saints, these people didn't receive what was promised because what we have in Christ is better. I don't know if Adam repented and and believed. Let's assume that Adam repented and believed. The first man to sin is the first man to be justified by faith. He's the first man to receive the promises of God. What were the promises of God to Adam? Covering sin. God killed the animal. He clothed Adam and Eve in, in the skin of the animal. That's it. All that they've got is the, is the promise that it'll be okay. God's going to take care of it. He's going to provide the sacrifice. That's all they have. That's all Adam has. Noah gets a little bit more. Abraham a bit more. Moses a little bit more. But every one of them died in faith without receiving the promise so that they would receive what we receive. So that when eternity comes, it would all be placed into their hands. What Jesus said is better than what was said to Adam or Abraham or Moses. What Jesus taught in the revelation of God in the Lord Jesus Christ is the, is the fullness of God's revelation to man on this mortal world. He has more to say to us, I believe, in heaven, in eternity, when we can bear it. But right now, what we have is sure and certain because it has been contained in writing. It's been given to us in print. God has given us great and precious promises, Peter calls them. He's enabled us to live by faith in him and the fact that he has made those promises. He's testified his approval of our faith. How do we know he's testified his approval of our faith? By two things. First of all, by enabling our victories. By enabling us to stand in faith, by enabling us to continue to believe. And second, by keeping us from falling under the weight of suffering. There are people in this world who experience a weight of suffering that we cannot begin to fathom. A Nigerian pastor's wife was kidnapped a few weeks ago. The family was finally able to raise less than $700 to pay for the ransom, but they found out that when the kidnappers had kidnapped her, they'd killed her. This morning, that family in Nigeria is suffering. Their church is suffering. They're hurting in ways that we can't imagine. But the Lord keeps us from falling and being crushed under the weight of that suffering. If the Lord tarries, if we die before he returns, then we will die in exactly the same place as all the men and women of Hebrews 11. We will die in faith without having received the promises so that all of the people of God from Adam to the very last one to believe will be glorified and transformed into the image of Christ at one time. John writes this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. As a Christian, the promise is that you will be made exactly like the Lord Jesus Christ in his perfect, sinless, glorified humanity. He earned the right to that glorified humanity. You didn't. He did. By faith in him, 
You receive justification. You receive the credit for the life that he lived, for the holiness of his life, for the righteousness of his life. And one day you will be dressed in Christ. As we bring this home then, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The, the people in this chapter demonstrated that. They were examples of that. They weren't always maybe the best examples of that. There are others that he could have mentioned. In fact, the writer talks about a number of others that he could have mentioned. As we live in faith, we're going to experience victories. Those victories are gifts of God. They're because of what he is doing in our lives. They're not because of us. They're not out of our strength. They're out of his strength. We're also going to experience suffering. Suffering is his his primary means of sanctifying us. Suffering is his primary means of breaking our dependence and hold on the world and increasing our dependence on him. In the midst of that suffering, we can start longing for the Lord to just fix what's wrong here. Sometimes I just really want him to fix what's wrong here. But we can start thinking, forget eternity. Let's not worry about eternity. What about today? What about now? And we forget that there is more to life than now. We have this promise that we will one day be brought to him. We will one day be laid in the grave. The vast majority of us, only a few, relatively speaking, are going to be raptured and caught up. We will be laid in the grave, and then in his time our bodies will be resurrected. Peter writes that at the end of time, the heavens and the earth will burn with fervent heat, and the elements will melt away, and then there will be a new heavens and the new earth. What that means is creation itself is going to be laid in the grave, and then resurrected and glorified. We will be perfected, at the same moment. We all began at different moments. We all began at a different place. We've proceeded at different paces. We've lived different lives. Wherever we enter the journey, we all end at the same place, and we all end at the resurrection. Jesus has already taken his place as the first fruits of the resurrection, but not the only fruits of the resurrection, and not the last fruits of the resurrection. He has established who we will be. What will you be in eternity? How will God view you in eternity? How will he relate to you in eternity? I can't answer that in detail. I can tell you this. How he views Jesus is how he will view you. How he relates to Jesus now is how he will relate to you in eternity. So whatever you have facing you today, tomorrow, this week, My prayer is that you will understand that it can't compare with the eternal weight of glory that is to come and that your hope will not be in this world being fixed, but in the work God is doing. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your kindness to us. We thank you for the truth of your word. We ask, Lord, that as we continue to contemplate these things, as we move back into the busyness of, of our lives, 
that you will stop us and remind us that your promises are going to be fulfilled. That glory is coming. That perfection is coming. That you will finish the good work that you have begun in us. In the meantime, Lord, teach us to see our victories as your work in us. Teach us to view our sufferings as the dark backdrop against which your faithfulness is painted. Strengthen us and fill us with your life. And in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.